Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windorf of Monster Magnet. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiska talking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar. This is Alan Tecchio from Autumn Hour, Hades, Nonfiction, Watchtower, Minds, Mirrors, and other assorted bands, and you're listening listening to Mars Attacks Radio. Hey, Metalheads and Headbangers, this is Dolo Passion. Hi, it's Conrad Apiece, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yow! Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> Hello, this is Dave Reffitt, and you're listening to Mars Attacks with my good buddy Victor. Crank it up. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Lee with Pop Evil, and you're listening to Mars Attack. Okay. My name's Phil Lanzen. I'm in Uriah Heat, and you're listening to Mars Attacks.
Welcome, one and all, to episode 52 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and during this episode, we bring you two interviews, one with Uri Heap keyboard player, Phil Lanzon. You just heard uh, I Can't See You from the album Into the Wild, which came out earlier this year. And you'll also hear an interview with Lee from the band Pop Evil. Uh, Both of these interviews were conducted earlier this year. Just wanted to make sure that I got them out so that you guys do check out both bands, both albums. And um, the Uriah Heap album actually came out uh, towards late spring. And uh, they've since put out a live album. Uh, which is live in Armenia, and what I'll do is I'll feature a live track later on in the episode. Uh, Before that, just want to remind you guys to check out MarsAttacksRadio.com where you'll find all of the information regarding all the other podcasts that we have available. Uh, Also, the playlist for the Mars Attacks Radio Show, uh, which can be heard exclusively on Mark Striegel Radio. That is Stream A of Mark Striegel Radio. There's actually a widget on the homepage of MarsAttacksRadio.com where you could listen to Stream A. And um, if you could, you know, check out the station. I actually help program it. Uh, We'll get around to updating some of the playlists uh, later on this week. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Enjoy the music that's currently on there and what we'll be adding shortly. Uh, Also, check out the Classic Albums column. If you haven't listened to or read any of the previous comments, uh, we have, well, this past episode was Megadeth's um, Peace Cells. I was about to say Countdown to Extinction for some reason. Uh, Anyway, Peace Cells, before that we had um, Tools Anima, before that Van Halen 2, before that Queens of the Stone Age, Songs for the Deaf, before that Cleansing by Prong, and we kick things off with Metallica's and Justice for All. So we're spread out through all different types of hard rock and metal. Uh, metal and hard rock aren't just one thing, at least not in my mind. And uh, how we put these episodes together, I should say how we put the list together, was based on interviews that I've done with people, uh, conversations that I've had sort of off the record at shows uh, or on the phone with certain people regarding albums that they dig. And, you know, there are some of these albums that people are going to dispute. For example, with Van Halen 2. I don't want to focus on 1984 and the first Van Halen album. I think, you know, those albums have been talked up so much that, you know, I wanted to go in another direction. And I truly think that Van Halen 2 is just as strong as any of those albums. So that's why we went with that. Um, and the other thing, too, is, you know, it's sort of subject for the for debate. (laughs) You know, it gets people to go back to either check these albums out, uh, or it gets them to check them out for the first time, rediscover them, uh, or check out who's commenting on these albums. You know, uh, people went apeshit with Dan Lorenzo's comments on Van Halen too. You know, maybe it makes you go check out what Dan Lorenzo does and maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it, but at least, you know, you check out who this person is and, you know, who knows? Maybe you're turned on to um, to one of their sites or albums or whatnot, and you know everyone ends up winning. So, and it's just cool to uh, 
talk about great music and great songs. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, that's why, uh, you know, you guys come check out these episodes. You know, the interviews are great. You know, these the people that come on, these guests that come on, uh, they're the stars of these shows. I'm just some guy lucky enough to, um, you know, throw these episodes together and interview some of these people uh, and put some shows together that, you know, people really enjoy with uh, some pretty cool music along the way. So thanks. Thanks to all you people for listening. Uh, also, what else? Um, subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to it via iTunes. If not, you can stream it or download it directly from the Mars Attacks Radio website. Uh, I know that personally, I'm not able to sit around all day and just listen to a lot of these shows. And I love to have it you know, in a downloadable format via iTunes so that when, say, Talking Metal or Iron City Rocks or Decibel Geek Podcast or um, Chiaki's Japanese Metalhead, you know, when there's a new episode, um, you know, you download it and you take it with you uh, to listen to in the car or on a walk or, or whatever, you know, it's just great to listen to other people's opinions and other shows and um, you know, check out some of those links on the right side of the homepage there on MarsAttacksRadio.com to a lot of the exciting sites and podcasts that I do check out. Uh, anyway, I'm getting a little off track here. Um, go to iTunes, subscribe, leave your comments. Um, also, subscribe to the Twitter account so that you find out who we're interviewing. Uh, it's towards the end of the year, so a lot of the interviews that we have have been recorded uh, within the last few weeks to month. And uh, we're going to try to get them out there as soon as possible uh, before the end of the year and start with a clean slate for next year. But, um, yeah, so check back to the website frequently. Check the Twitter account out as well. Um, and uh, let's get into some music before we get into the interviews. Normally we do the interviews, or I'm sorry, the music towards the end of the show, but let's do some beforehand. I uh, want to hit on some cover tunes here. ZO2. ZO2 is on the new Eric Carr album. Eric Carr from KISS, who uh, just celebrated the anniversary of his passing away uh, back in November. And his sister just put out an album called Unfinished Business. And ZO2 covered one of my all-time favorite 80s KISS tracks. The track was originally written while Vinnie Vincent was in the band off the Lick It Up album. This is All Hell's Breaking Loose by ZO2. the street minding my own business now he looks me up and he looks me down and says hey man what be this and what be that why you gotta look like that well i just looked at him i kind of laughed and said hey man i am cool i am breeze how have you heard there's a new revolution 
Hell's Breaking Loose by ZO2. Another cover track here. Our good friends Holy Grail. We've had several members on the show. Actually a current member and a former member. And I've interacted with someone else who's currently in the band while they were in Bonded by Blood. Anyway, they just put out something called Seasons Bleedings. It's an EP. I got this off of iTunes, and two of these tracks I actually had. Their uh, cover of Judas Priest Exciter and Accepts Fast as a Shark. Well, let's get into their cover of the Rainbow Classic, Kill the King.
there you go. A little Kill the King by Holy Grail. Next track. Uh, sort of off the beaten track here. Uh, this is Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails fan with Articus Ross and Karen O. Uh, covering the Led Zeppelin classic, The Immigrant Song, for the U.S. version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. song uh last track this actually isn't a cover track this is by huntress i've actually played this on the radio show before and on fusion sonica my spanish uh radio show and um huntress is a group that i interviewed a little while back before they started recording this album they were in the writing stages and um the name of this track is Seven Swords. Really, really cool track. Really enjoy it and hope, uh, you know, big things await Huntress in 2012. Check the track out.
Eight of Swords. I said seven before. Excuse me. Um, from what I've read online, that has to do with Jill Janis, the lead singer of the band's uh, love for tarot cards. So there you go. In any event, let's get into a little Pop Evil. Um, Pop Evil's a band out of Michigan. A lot of you may have seen them opening up for Whitesnake and Judas Priest a few years back. And uh, there's actually questions regarding that tour. Let's jump into a track by Pop Evil here. The album that they put out earlier this year is called War of Angels. And let's get into the second track off of the album. This is Epitaph.
Okay, cool. So the band originally comes from Muskegon in Michigan, which is, you know, the opposite side of the state from Detroit. Was Detroit still the city that first accepted you guys or broke you guys, or did you no, have to go band, elsewhere? The three of us, uh, Matt, Matt, Tony, and I are from Muskegon. The band was started in Grand Rapids. I started in Grand Rapids when I was going to Grand Valley State University. Out there. Okay. And so, it kind of gets flustered, kind of gets weirded around because the majority of us are from Muskegon. No, but the band gotcha. never really actually started there. It started in Grand in Grand Rapids, and you know, and kind of just grew. But you know, Muskegon Grand Rapids is really the same thing for us. I mean, we we all grew up there, so we we're back and forth with family and stuff. You know, okay. so that's kind of how I think that all came about. But we we did our first uh, we did our first album out in Detroit with Al Sutton, and then I'm um, Chuck Alcazian. We did Lipstick on the Mirror with, and then um, they were out in Canton and Detroit and Royal Oak. So that's how the Detroit uh, connection would work out. We'd be working day jobs during the week, and then we'd drive to Detroit on the weekends and record, and uh, and then, of course, playing shows in between. Okay. That's kind so of you... in the early days, our early start. Okay, so everything sort of came together there at Grand Rapids, and you guys just grew from there, basically. Yeah, Exactly. Okay. And um you guys are currently on E1 uh which is I'm assuming slightly different from working with a very big label like Universal. Um what differences for fans that aren't aware of what goes on behind the scenes? What differences can there be from an E1 to say a, a label like Universal? Well, we had we had differences with with the old label just cuz they're so big. Um, we kind of got lost in shuffle, you know, like it just uh, not a lot of direct attention was, you know, given to us. So we really didn't have a, a lot done for us there. So when we came with E1, I mean, it's just, it's just been amazing to be at a label that just cares and cares about you and the music and makes you a priority. You know what I mean? We weren't really a priority at the bigger label because they have so many other great acts, you know? So I think okay. that's the biggest difference for us. But on the, on the flip side, uh, what type of band with our management since we went full time in 07 there, we've always done it ourselves, you know, booked our own touring. We've done our own, we got our own radio. I mean, it's, it's kind of been a self-sufficient team of, of people that kind of are the bloodline for pop evil. So one now having E1 kind of be able to come in there with the budget and their connections to really help kind of, I think kind of lift the momentum that we already had, you know, kind of when we were at the old label, and not being a priority, it was like we were just going downhill. It, kept, it felt like someone's trying to just pull you underwater. You know, you're just trying to fight for air. Okay. And is there a difference with the pressure involved that maybe E1 might put on you guys as opposed to what maybe Universal wants you guys to automatically have a hit for them to sell where, I don't know, no, maybe don't E1 think, is a little laid back? or I, I don't think I've ever felt any pressure from either or. There's just always been a pressure on yourself to always want to write a hit. You know, I mean... I, I think the the pressure. Is, I don't know if there's really a pressure from them. Obviously, you know, with E1, we've coming on with our second, you know, our second top ten single now with with Monster You Made this week actually. And um, you know, I, we've never really been uh, not on fire kind of with them. We signed when just after Last Man Standing, which was the first single off this new album, and you know that blew up for us. And then the second single's blown up too. So. We really haven't had a real down period yet with E1, you know. Okay. We're kind of sort of all all uh, all guns a blazing. 
Okay. And I actually had a question regarding Last Man Standing due to the fact that it did receive a lot of attention from various media outlets like ESPN, the NHL Network, and Frank Mir actually used the uh, track as well. Uh, how did right. that ex exposure directly affect you guys? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's all been a part of that snowballing effect that people are slowly but surely starting to hear about the band, you know? I mean, especially uh, in the sports avenue, I mean, uh, a lot of sports people who might not have listened to pop people otherwise are becoming aware of the band because of that song and, and coming in listening to some of our other stuff as well. So it's, um, it's been a huge, uh, a huge um, boost to the band and, and to the exposure of a band. And it's, uh, it's been fun to kind of see the things that come along with it to have a uh, sporting teams or sporting events really take on your band and take on your music. It's, uh, it, it's exciting. Okay. And as far as the album, War of Angels, how long did the entire writing process take for the album? Uh, how long did the writing process? Yeah. So, uh, it took about a year. It took about a year. It took about four or five months to, uh, it took about four or five months, let's see, to, to demo in the early stages, kind of hand-pick some tunes, and then it took about six, seven months to, uh, to get in the studio there. We moved to Chicago with Johnny K and just grind and man every day we just moved in to the studio together. There weren't a lot of family and friends, no girls, no cars down there and we just we just put all the attention on where it should be the music. Okay. And you guys did you purposely set out to do something different with this album? Was part of that lockdown mentality part of what you guys were looking for to try to go in a different direction or did everything just sort of come about organically? Yeah, I, I, I think we were, we weren't really necessarily trying to do something different. We just wanted to finally get a chance to do what we've always wanted to do, make a pop people record that was had its heavy rock, heavy metal influences, but also being able to have its rock and its ballad influences. You know, we want to put together a piece of work that collectively showed our moods and our the type of characters we are as people. You know, like we have we have anger, we 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 feel jealousy, we feel passion, we feel love, we feel pain, you know, we wanted to kind of expose as many of those emotions that we've gone through over the past, you know, couple of years doing this at the uh, professional highest level and letting people get an idea of who we are as a band now. Kind of, finally, we had the, the money and the budget. That was the one thing Universal came came up big for. They gave us the opportunity to work with Johnny K and the budget where we could do pretty much anything we wanted on that record. For you know, a band that grew up in a small town of Western Michigan to finally get an opportunity to be in the big leagues and play and and just do the record of your dreams was uh, was pretty incredible, you know. And that's one thing I think that's hard for any band to, especially new bands, because uh, you know things are changing. The internet changed everything. Everyone's scared to lose jobs, and uh, you know they're not just throwing money right and left. Of you know, especially at new bands and new rock bands in general. You know, it's like. We wanted to um, put together, um, you know, have an opportunity to put together, you know, the record, uh, the record we felt like best symbolized who we are as people and where we want to be. And, um, you know, to be able to do that and look back when it's all said and done and say, yeah, I'm happy with that or no, I don't like that or would I change this, would I have done this differently here? You know, for, for, for the first time in our careers to be able to say, hey, that's the best we could do with what our life situation is, who we are as people right now. We're the best mixers. We had the best engineers. We had the best mastering guys. I mean, it just, 
that was it. I can't be more happy with the record. Now, if people don't like the record, I can live with that. It's the best we got, something we're proud of, you know? Whereas right. in the past, you know, people that don't like it, you're like, oh, I wish I could have just recorded that differently. I wish we could have done this here with the drums, or I wish we could have tweaked the highs on the mid-range of the bass, and I wish we would have used a Fender instead of a, you know, and instead of a Dean, or I wish we would have used a Dean instead of a Fender, you know I mean? It's just right. So many things, you know, that you, that we had a, the opportunity to do on this record we didn't because we were on we were on a money we were on the clock the first record we were nobody so you know right. engineers are trying to make money off you producers trying to make money off you so like you know when you do stuff like that it's just it's just it's frustrating it's stressful and you know I don't know it's just one of those things that, that finally being able to do that it was uh, was was a unique and cool opportunity okay and um, how does Johnny K fit into the mix with this album. Obviously, uh, he's a big-name producer that's worked with a lot of well-known acts. Uh, how did he help you guys find that sound that you guys were looking for? Uh, he was, man, I don't think there's one particular way where he did that. I mean, he's just incredible, you know. I mean, I mean, we basically got in there and studied studied the game, and studied music, studied other bands we loved and what they were doing and what we weren't doing you know, how we could expose our identity and figure out who we were as a band trying to shape this thing. And it was just, um, just incredible. I mean, he's, he's, uh, trying to keep for a reason and, and just kind of being able to be there and be, uh, intertwined in his ways and his teachings. He's just, uh, really did feel like the teacher of the students, you know, he really, you know, kind of just gave us that little boost. I think we all needed as, as a, as a team and a band family to say, Hey, this we can do this. This is cool. Like we can we can get this thing done. We can do it the right way. You know, instead of you know what mics were you using on 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 uh what mic instead of being in a studio in Detroit being like okay I would need a mic sound that sounds like the lead singer Disturb you know or the lead singer Three Doors <laughs> Down you know like and now I can just say hey you know what's the uh what's the uh, what's the microphone you used that would disturb Three Doors Down oh it's this one right here you know what I mean like <laughs> it's just a big difference. You know what I mean? But, you waiting for me? Mind your way? It, uh, it was just a really cool opportunity. Johnny K was just amazing. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. So, I mean, there's there's less bullshit involved as well, whereas opposed to someone, like yeah. I said before, trying to take advantage. You know, this is the man that actually worked with these successful acts, and he can actually tell you what he did or, you know, bring certain things to the table that maybe some other shyster is trying to pan off but you know he's actually able to deliver the goods yeah you're exactly right you know it's just to being able to know and, and he's got those things in his repertoire there's there's a level of security in a way for for a younger man who's never been in that position for him to say okay i know even in my worst ability he's going to give me the best sounding album we've ever had you know and if i can just listen and drop we dropped all egos aside just listen to what Johnny did, understand he came for a reason, and, and uh, trust him, you know, maybe we'll get something that we can be proud of for the rest of our lives, you know, and then he certainly did that with us. I mean, one, one top five record, single, and then on our way to this one's already top ten in this week. I mean, I can't be mad at that, you know, so. Right. Um, going a little uh, backwards in time again, uh, you guys toured a few years back with Judas Priest and White Snake. Uh, what was it like for a young band like Pop Evil to tour with uh, two such legendary bands? 
I mean, it was insane. I mean, first of all, I have just an opportunity to grow up listening to those bands and to be able to finally show the stage with them. It's just that it's, well, I mean, it's a lifetime. You know, I'm not just any days to do that. So, again, that, the priest, um, you know, approved that and want us to be on the road with them. It was a ginormous compliment. You know, but just how professional they are, the priest is just, wow. I mean, it definitely came in being a new band. We, we still, we still moved in an organizational thing. How they run and manage their whole team. We do we still some of those moves that we still incorporate in our in our project today. You know, I mean, they're just just true road veterans, very savvy, very amazing, and that's uh, it's, um, it, it was cool. It was cool to be a part of that. It's um, to have those guys um, just kind of uh, again embrace the band and uh. To kind of just show us, you know, I guess in a quiet way to say, hey, if you guys just keep doing what you're doing, you know, this can be you too. You know, to be over there 25 years, going on 30 years in Mexico. I mean, it's incredible, incredible track record. You know, so I think if anything, it motivated pop people to say, hey, you know, we are doing some things right. At the end of the day, if you can keep keep pushing and keep doing what you're doing and obviously write great music, you know, you can be around for a long time. And I think that's one of the you know, the exciting things that we took from that whole experience. Okay. And was it difficult for you guys to win over their audience, or was their oh, audience oh very God. open-minded? Yeah, yeah. No, they're the Judas Priest audience, the most scariest fans ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough, man. I mean, like, you know, people who, you know, want to go to see White Snake and Judas Priest, you know, they don't get to see those fans just any day. So they really right. don't want to be wasted with, uh, wasting time with opening bands and things like that. So to actually, you know, we had standing ovations every night, every city. So it was uh, pretty incredible to get that kind of response and, and to have everyone, uh, again, just kind of be an open mind to just some new rock and roll music. And what was cool about it is a lot of these people who are priest fans are now obviously adults now bringing their next generation in. And uh, right. that new generation got to see us, somebody younger, somebody that's on the radio right now with new music. And, um, you know, I thought it was a, a win-win. I mean, it was, you know, the, the old old school diehard priest fans got entertained and people were open minded with the, the next generation and, and the newest rock uh, a new band that really got really got an awesome kick ass show so it was cool and of course White Snake was great as well. Cool. Um, I always ask guitarists about their gear and drummers uh, about what they're playing as well, so on and so forth. But I like to ask singers what they do to deliver every night? Do you do some sort of uh, warm-up? Are there any specific exercises that you do? What would you tell a young singer to do if he wants to be, you know, out on tour night after night? You know, I honestly don't do anything. I mean, I try not to. I just try to just be... I mean, I've tried all those things before. I don't know. I mean, you still have an original voice if you sing too hard. still not... You know, it, it's like practicing, you know, like... I think halfway through the season in a sporting event. So there's practicing can hurt more they can help, you know. And we've been seeing that's out now, especially us until seven, like every day pretty much. They're like, why well, get to rest? Try to rest. Before the show, try to rest. Try not to always get too caught up in the party and drink and go crazy things like hurt your voice. Try not to talk a little never, you know, try to text. I mean, just little things. I mean, you find it, it's, obviously it's different depending on I mean, I've been off at three, four days, and I had one show back yesterday, so I've only two shows in in this past couple of weeks since I was recovering, so it's like, I feel good. You know what I mean? So what I'll try not to do is stay up late, spring in, and party in, and 
when your friends or fans come and hail you after the shows, they always want to hear your hit song. They want you to play and sing for them. You're like, hell no. Hell no. You know what I mean? Like, you can't do that. Right. So, you know, it's just, it's just about trying to be as smart as you can. And obviously, it's, some days are harder than others, depending on the party and who's here in the show and how everyone else is around you. Because it, it is fun. Um, the thing the day with five people, we were all 11 people and they're all, they're all my brothers. I mean, it's like a fraternity. We all grew up together. So, it's like a, has a sleepover rock and roll party on a tour bus. It's, 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 it's the best, best show in the world. Okay. And uh, what's up next for you guys? You're currently on tour, you said. How long is this tour yeah, we're last? Tour. We're doing a headline run. And we're going to do uh, you know, a couple of weeks with Egypt Central, and then we're out with our big tour with Three Doors Down and Theory of the Dead Man. Okay. And uh, where should people go to keep up with the band? Yeah, uh, you go to poppeople.com or go to uh, facebook.com forward slash poppeople. We're very active on the Facebooks. It's an opportunity for us to, you know, get in touch with the fans, try to read the comments, try to answer the questions, and, uh, you know, so, and put up the pictures and let people get involved. So Facebook is definitely a way where you can uh, kind of get more hands-on with the band individuals. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Lee with Pop Evil, and you're listening to Mars Attack.
a little last man standing from Pop Evil. Moving forward, let's get into the Phil Lanzon part of the episode. Phil is the keyboard player of Uriah Heep. And um, just so you know, the leadoff question is regarding previous keyboard players in Uriah Heep. Um, There's one really big-name keyboard player, Ken Hensley, that was in Uriah Heep. But there was also a keyboard player, John Sinclair, who spent quite a few years with Ozzy Osbourne, who came from Uriah Heep as well. And that's why I asked Phil about following in the footsteps of other famous keyboard players. Now, I'm not sure what the relationship is there um, or how things ended up with John or whatnot, but I threw the question out there, and in a second you guys will find out exactly what uh, Phil has to say regarding that. In any event, let's get into the leadoff track of the album, This Is Nail on the Head. In your younger days with your godless ways and your gold crest limousine You were making trends with your so-called friends with a power so obscene Then your hollow heart it was torn apart, you were torn a learning curve. If you turn your back on good advice, you get what you deserve. We hit the nail right on the head, we hit the nail right on the head. Over and over again. We hit the nail right on the head, we hit the nail right Just wants to try his best to make things good. He's an honest man with a helping hand from a rundown neighborhood. Then you hear the thud, you see the blood. This good work come undone. Step aside for the one who said, Only the good die young.
you joining Uriah Heep. Mm-hmm. The band had a long history of well-known keyboard players. Did that intimidate you at all when joining the band? No, um, I I didn't really know much about the previous keyboard players. I mean, apart from Ken, I had right. heard, I'd heard of Ken, and that's about it, really. And uh, it never really crossed my mind. Even back then, it never crossed my mind. Today, it never crossed my mind, and it really it, it means very little to me. Um, as far as I was concerned, I was joining a band that had a track record of uh, success in the 70s right right through the rock and roll era and this was important to me and um i was very very happy and proud to join a band like that and uh, and i'm still today this day 25 years later right (laughs) very happy okay and how did you initially get involved with the band did they approach you did you approach them because there was an opening uh no they, they approached me because um the man who was the, the, the out front sound man at the time, I already knew from uh, the previous band I was in, which was called Grand Prix. And um, he'd gone off on tour with Uriah Heap after he left Grand Prix. And Grand Prix folded up and became no band anymore. And um, later on, uh, the, Uriah Heap uh, stopped working for a few months while they changed the personnel. And I got a call from... I got a call from Howard, the, the the sound man. I got a call from Bernie, who already knew Mick, saying they needed a keyboard player. And I was just literally getting on the flight to go to Australia with the suite. Huh, okay. And, and um, I said, oh, that sounds great to me, but I have to go and do this tour first, and I'll come back and maybe do an audition or whatever. And so I went off to Australia, and while I was in Australia, I spoke to Mick on the phone and he uh, gave me a list of songs because um, things were not too well with Sweet and I said well it would be great to do an audition or come along and meet you so he sent me a list of all the songs and I learned all the songs while I was away in Australia and I came back to England and we met up at my house and we had a long talk for a whole day and we talked about the music and the songs and everything that we'd done and we got together, and it just worked very quickly together. Okay, so it was fairly uh, a painless experience transitioning from the suite over into yeah. the band. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the very, very different. Well, not very different music. Yeah, very. Yeah, okay. So, suite was very popular music as well as rock. Um, right. Whereas, whereas UI Heat was more uh, album type music, and um, not hits, but, but but famous albums from you know Demons Wizards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Um, and so that there's that track. Both track records were very important for the music business and very important for rock and roll. So uh, I was very happy, and um, we we had a great time together, and it just worked out very you know, like friends. You know, it was like bang. Right. No problem. Excellent. And why was now the right time to put a studio album together? Why is now the right time? Yes. Uh, no particular reason, only that we uh, we were looking for the right record company um, a year ago, mm-hmm. and there were various companies involved, and uh, we decided to go with Frontiers because Frontiers had a good track record. Again, they had a good track record. Also, they are 
very uh, what's the word? Um, they're very involved in their artists, and they have an opinion about things, which is really really good, and it's the kind of thing that, as an artist, is good to have that relationship with a record company. Because generally right. speaking, uh, with record companies, I mean, they're not all the same, of course, but generally speaking, <laughs> a record company might sign you uh, to do an album and they say, okay, we want 10, 11, 12 tracks, and you give them the 10, 11, 12 tracks, and they say, thank you, bye, put it on the shelf, and wait for something to happen. Right. Whereas here, we have a company that's a little bit more active, um, certainly are interested to know what we are doing at all times they want to see uh, they want to see results for for the money basically and and it's quite it's not natural you know it's natural to have that and, right and we, we find that um, we've had a lot of um, good rapport from frontiers and hopefully we'll have a long relationship with them okay excellent um, how long did this album take to write Ooh, good question. Uh, okay, we'd written most of the songs before we went into the studio, but um, when we got in the studio, we decided we wanted to change some things. So okay. uh, it was very, it was very last minute. A lot of the songs were very last minute. In fact, some of the songs were only written in the studio. And in fact, three of the songs were written in the studio from scratch. Right. Uh, because we weren't too happy about one or two things, so we went, ah, oh, shit, what should we do? Okay, <laughs> we'll lose this and we'll do that okay boom so we uh me and mick were out in the foyer writing songs while russell and trevor and bernie were working in there and and it was like a, a, a factory <laughs> <laughs> it was just like uh, the old motown days it was like uh okay what should we do next okay do this do this do this oh, let's try that boom, boom, boom. so it was very quick right but it, it, at the same time uh, the whole process was maybe only let me see three four weeks Huh, no kidding. Yeah, really. From beginning from beginning of recording to uh oh actually the mix was later. From beginning of recording to completely finishing recording was three and a half, four weeks. Hmm. Fairly quick as as you mentioned. Quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> How has the songwriting process changed over the years within the band? Has it changed? Has it stayed the same? Well, no, absolutely not changed at all because the formula is we make the music first, we write the songs, no, we write the songs in the musical form first with riffs and chord sequences <clears throat> and uh, we stick with those for a while, we play around with that for a while and then I start singing a melody over the choruses on the songs and I start building up the choruses from that and then when we're happy with that, we then sit down and work on the lyrics, the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> the tough cookie uh, yeah so, so that's what we do so we work on the music first generally uh, sometimes you, you may get um, you may get a good title come come along and it, it, influence, it influences you into one direction but it's quite rare and generally we get the music first okay and uh, the album is very interesting because it Sounds like a classic album, but it sounds like an up-to-date classic album mm -hmm. yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Was this something that you were trying to accomplish with the album? Oh, oh that's another good question. No, not, not really at all. We weren't conscious of any, anything to do with uh, 
aiming for a specific direction at all. It was just <laughs> it was just a question of um, we need a good rock album, and, and that's generally what we aim for all the time. A good rock album with you know uh, one or two slow songs, of course, and 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 that was what we aimed for. Uh, no, there was never a time where we said, oh, we must do so and so, or we must try right. and be like blah blah blah. There's never that, never that happened. So if it's a classic, then fine. I think it's very important to remember that when you speak about a classic album, and it's not just your Heap, it's all bands. It's it's every artist in the world that's ever been. A classic album grows. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. It, it doesn't become a classic album from day one. It may sound right. great or very interesting from day one, but it never becomes a classic album until later. True. Because uh, time goes on, and, and it's time that I think it's the right wording is it's time that puts its stamp on the music. Mm -hmm. And so as time goes by. You go, oh, that was a really great album. Gee, I forgot about that one. So you put it yeah. on again. You go, oh, wow. And then people are picking up on it again. And then suddenly this band is called back to play concerts because that was such a great album. And then 10 years later, it becomes nostalgia. Right. <laughs> and then you move into another <laughs> another uh, realm. And, and that's how things become classic. So re you know, we don't really know how Into the Wild is going to go for another few years. Right. And... Me saying that it sounds classic, it sounds along the lines of what was previously done by the band, but yet it sounds up to date, was mm -hmm. maybe what what I should have said. And, um, and I agree with you. There are a lot of albums that initially you listen to them, they sound great for the moment, mm -hmm. and you listen to them five, ten years down the road, and you realize they didn't age as well as others that maybe initially didn't catch on, but That's over right. the years really... You know, have a life of their own. That's right. Yes, it's, it's, uh, that's a good statement. Age as well. Age as well is probably the right thing. It's a bit like wine. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've got to admit, <laughs> a good wine. <laughs> ah, no, but that's true. I think you got it right there. And um, that, that's what's interesting. And uh, this is this is really even more interesting when you look at the the audiences that we play to. Over the, uh, across the world. I mean, we, we go to so many countries now and so many festivals and, and touring. We, we, we play so many times with so many people. But if we look at the cross-section of people who come to our shows, <clears throat> you'll see uh, a lot of the times there could be three generations. Right. Now, of course, the older generation remember the original. The middle generation will be influenced by what their fathers have played them, and a little bit like this, and a little bit of this, but the really young generations are are are, are geared directly to the, the energy in the music, right? And so, and you can see a pattern emerging, and I think that's what's uh, I think that's what's fascinating about a, a band which you know like this, like the UI Heat, that's been around for quite a long time, as we have, we're beginning to see that, and it's unfortunate, of course, because younger artists and younger bands will never see that for another 15, 20 years. If that. <laughs> if that. So, so yeah. it is, it's a unique position that we're in. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a completely different dynamic. And actually, one of my latter questions mm -hmm. uh, was re with regards to uh, Spiritual Beggars, who's somewhat of a uh, relevant band nowadays because of some of its members and they actually covered one of um, Uriah Heep's songs 
on their latest release that came out last year. Yeah. I think that a lot of people as well, uh, newer generations of listeners are going to absorb your music well mm. Because a lot of the bands that are popular now were influenced by what Uriah Heep did. Well, yeah. And it's almost like um, like they're into the band in a vicarious fashion because they're mm. into someone that was influenced by the band originally. So, mm -hmm. Well, um, it's funny. It's very interesting that you say it. We've just come back from Australia, and um, my cousin lives in Darwin in the north Northern Territory of Australia. Okay. And he has a son who lives in Melbourne who is into hip-hop. Okay. All right. Now, uh, I, I mean, I hate that kind of music. I have enough, no interest <laughs> in it whatsoever. However, having said that, I don't dismiss it. Or I don't dismiss any music whatsoever. Right. But he came to the concert in Melbourne in Australia, and he was blown away. And the reason he was blown away was because he had never ventured into <clears throat> this area of rock music before. Right. Never. I mean, he's only a kid. He's 20, 22, 23 years old. So, you know, it's understandable. Uh, but he ventured into that area on that particular night, and he was totally moved by it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really important because, because um, uh, you know, gen genres of music will eventually cross over, and people... You know, musicians will be influenced by this and that, and uh, you know, uh, things that they would not normally be influenced by. Right. And that's what's really important because um, uh, that's what makes that's what makes the music industry interesting. Because right. the, the, the musicians and writers of of you know uh, of bands etc. will pick up on this or on that and will move it into their genre, and therefore it will become a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. And time goes by, and it becomes something else, and then it, then they create a new genre of music, and and it goes on and on. So therefore, he was very intrigued by rock and roll and hearing that sort of music, which he hadn't heard before. Right. And that's really really interesting. And the same works for yeah. people in our side, you know, on the rock and roll side of it, will go into hip hop or or um, drum and bass or you know that kind of music, and we'll find something there. You know, right. which, which will really hate it, but there'll be some little thing in there, <laughs> which is beautiful, and you pull that out. And that's interesting coming from you because maybe keyboard players are more susceptible to things like that mm. because a lot of the gear crosses over. Where, well, well, to the extent that with different drum and bass producers or rap producers or whatever. Mm. Um, there are keyboards present for samples and, right. and for That's different right. effects. That's right. yeah. Whereas you don't have, you know, guitar, bass, drums in the mix. So maybe there's a crossover in products and things like that. So you do get to, well, uh, to an extent, rub maybe elbows with people you didn't expect. That's right. That's right. And I think <clears throat> personally, that's a, that's a very healthy thing. I mean, I, I would like to see something like, um, hmm, well, let's take take an example of a rock band, whether it be your know, or, or or Led Zeppelin. It doesn't matter. Deep Purple doesn't matter. And take their producers and move them across to the other side, and then right. take producers from the other side and bring them over, and then knock out half a dozen albums by all those great names by the opposite producers. Right, and that would be a good example. We haven't really gone down that road properly yet. 
Right. I, I think that, that that may be something for the future, but um, it's good. It's like movie directors. I mean, movie movie directors do all sorts of movies. They don't just do crime or romance. They do comedy sure. or fantasy, you know, adventure. They cross over. But I don't see a lot of crossing over in music. There is a little, but I think maybe... It might it may benefit the industry to to um, go down that road a little more. That's right. That, anyway, you know. That's a good point. Just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to recording for a second, mm. how has recording changed over the last twenty five years? Uh, obviously, mm. things are done now with Pro Tools yeah. as opposed to being on analog tape or mm -hmm. on DAT as it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this change has made music better? Do you think it's weakened music to an extent? Uh, not really. No, I did at one point think that that, that was the case, but I, I don't think so anymore because, yes, everything has changed over now. We, For example, <clears throat> we have, instead of a mixing desk, we have two big screens. Okay. Okay, and one little keyboard with a mouse. Swing, 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 and everything is done completely on those two screens. There is a desk with the general volume settings, but it's nothing to do with the recording. It's all done from the screens. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we we went in and we played all our songs live. Basically, we we didn't really the other, only overdubs were solos and bits and pieces, but generally speaking, we just went in and we played live, and the feeling from the sound coming back in the studio was great, like a proper live recording. Right. So really, the equipment hasn't really changed much because in the old days, everything was actually recorded live anyway, an analog. And right. Okay, okay, this is digital. There is a difference. Um, and the difference, how do I explain to you the difference? Well, uh, uh, okay. To the extremely trained ear, Mm -hmm. there is a difference. To the general ear, there is probably no difference whatsoever. Right. To a musician's ear, a general musician's ear, there is a small difference, but it's not enough to go, hey, I don't like that. Right, right. Absolutely not. I mean, there is a, yes, there is a difference, but look, as long as the band plays live, as long as the feeling comes across on the track, it doesn't matter about the fact that it's not two-inch tape. It doesn't matter the fact that it, this doesn't matter. The, the, the emotion and passion that comes across on the track is the only thing that matters. Right. And if it comes across, it doesn't matter how on that me, what medium is used to make that happen. Right, okay. That's how I see it. <laughs> Excellent. Call me old <laughs> No, no that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, in the end, if, if a song is good and if the band is clicking, you know, yeah. the... and, and you'll hear that, you'll, you'll hear it, you'll yeah. hear it on the track, you'll go, blimey, that one works, that one doesn't, we'll go yeah. with that one, and that's it. How has your gear changed over the years? Yeah, well, well, for me personally, it's, it's, it's always been keyboard synthesizers and either a Hammond organ, or if there's no Hammond organ available, I'll use a, uh, a synthesizer type thing that matches the sound and I've had a few of those over the years because you can't truck a Hammond organ around the world because it, right. it costs you a fortune in, in trucking and, and, and freighting which would, which would actually negate the point of touring. 
Right. Uh, so uh, yeah, well, um, but we've had we've had samplers and and uh, various instruments on the road, keyboard wise. I've been through the whole lot really, and I've <laughs> pared it all down to two now because I don't I don't see the point in taking lots. Of, I don't want to be a Rick Wakeman, you know, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't see the point in all that anymore. Um, right. So I'm trying to pare it down to just organ and piano sounds and just keep it you know natural and sort of as, as, as near to organic as possible right well that's interesting that was my next question because mm-hmm. um especially with musicians that are crossing from the states to europe or going mm-hmm. over to japan mm-hmm. a guitarist in most cases can only take one guitar drummers maybe take pedals or a snare mm-hmm. and for a keyboard player obviously a mm-hmm. keyboard is much bigger than a guitar, for example. Oh well, we so, got we 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 um we make sure that we have them in in each country. Um, right. The only exception recently was Australia when we took the Nord, which is the wannabe organ, and um, we took that with us. But generally, we wouldn't be taking that. I mean, everything else in Europe is always there, and it's always right. hired from you know, from the tours that we do. Is it's always uh, part of the backline, if you like. Right. So, so the only thing, yeah, like you say, the only thing we're going to take is a few guitars. A couple of guitars and um, a couple of flight cases full of bits and pieces, really, pedals and that, and that's about it. Right. And how difficult is it to pair things up from country to country? Do you run into issues where yeah, you have to. Absolutely. <laughs> There's always <laughs> issues. I mean, you know, um, amplifiers won't match up, blah, 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 with something else. And. Uh, it's just the, the problem is you can't freight your own equipment all over the world. Right. You just can't do that. Okay. Well, you know, certain bands can afford to do that, but we we can't. We aren't in that position. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely, it's phenomenally expensive. And now freighting prices have gone up through the roof beyond. And they were expensive anyway, but now yeah. now it's gone crazy. Um, even more so. It's it's more of a problem for us. But but we deal with the local promoters and we get we get basically what we want. Okay. And um what do you attribute to the band's longevity? Uh well basically it's quite very simple. Very simple answer. It's it's the love of the music. And it's, okay. the, it's and it's also the love of the communication with people. And that that is exactly what it's all about because the music speaks for itself <clears throat> and the music speaks to the people and we deliver the music. Uh, all over the world to the people that want to hear it and it, there can't be more uh, there can't be anything more than that and that that will go on forever that will go right. on beyond our lifetimes it will go on for and as long as human beings are around right it will never ever stop because music is such a powerful force music music stirs people into action it makes them laugh cry and makes them do what the hell they do it makes you do everything. Without it, there's absolutely no life. Right. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with a band like your Eye Heap, mm-hmm. uh, something that you mentioned before, where the band has always been an album band, where yeah. mm-hmm. since they're not relying on a single or two to drive an entire show... Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know the fans themselves the people that come out to the shows and the festivals mm-hmm. are looking to hear 
you know, uh, specific tracks that yeah. maybe, you know, they haven't heard in a while or, you know, album tracks right. <laughs> specifically. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think those types of fans really have an additional love for the music than someone that's just looking for a greatest hits package. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, they, uh, that's why for the last, well, for, ever since the band has existed, they've, they've always played or we've always played um, 50% of the favorite songs. I mean, the July mornings, the Steelings, and the Easy Livings, they'll always be in the show because right. most of the people, or generally speaking, the people have come to hear those songs as well as anything else, as well as anything, any other bonuses. They want to hear those songs. So that's why we, that's why we split our show into half. No, we don't split it into half. Um, half the songs are from uh, let me see, from ooh, be mid seventies or late seventies upwards throughout the nineties and, and the noughties right up to the late. So we split the show into an area where we got as many albums as we can physically play in ninety right. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, strictly speaking, we should be playing four-hour shows <laughs> if you want the truth, <laughs> but uh, that's not possible. So. We cut it down to an hour and a half or an hour and 45, whatever. And right. Put whatever we can into that time. <laughs> and and for nowadays, with what a lot of bands are doing, that's actually a considerable amount. So it's not too bad. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, we've, we could, like I say, we could, play for th- we could play for three hours every night if we could possibly get the chance. <laughs> 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 I can't see that right now, but, you know... <laughs> Um, where should people go to uh, find out more about the band and possibly pick up the album when it comes out? Well, you can start with the web. Uh, yeah, start with the website to start with, which is uriah-heap.com. Okay. That's the starting point. That's the main um, website. Um, from that website, you can gain all the information about live concerts, uh, merch show other bits and pieces, uh, photographs, stories, it's all on that, it's all on that main website, so that's uriah-heat.com. Okay. Dash in the middle of the line, not dash at the bottom of the line. Okay. Yeah. A a hyphen as opposed to an underscore. There you go. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) My name's Phil Lanzen, I'm in Uriah Heat, and you're listening to Mars Attacks.
Into the Wild, the title track of the album. Just a great, great track. Absolutely love that particular song. Want to thank Phil for coming on. Want to thank Richard from Background Noise here in Spain for arranging that. Uh, Also want to thank Bill Meese from E1 who hooked me up with the interview uh, with Lee from Pop Evil. Uh, just remind you guys, MarsAttacksRadio.com. Uh, check that out again to stream or download any of the podcasts. Subscribe to it via iTunes. Uh, also check out the Classic Albums column, uh, VictorMRuez.com for my non-hard rock and metal podcast and comments. Uh, also, FusionSonica.com if you're into Spanish hard rock and metal. Uh, it isn't all Spanish music. Uh, there are other acts that uh, that I play that are international acts. So there you go. That's all available via the Mars Attacks Radio website right there on the homepage. And also a reminder, check out MarkStriegelRadio.com. Stream A is the stream that I help program. Thanks again for listening. We're going to close things out with a track off of the live in Armenia album by Uriah Heep. The name of this track is Shadow. Thanks again for listening. See you next time right here on Mars Attacks Podcast. (laughs) 